So good morning. Good morning, everyone, and welcome. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, good. Then the mic is working. Um, I'm Carolyn Dilley, and I work with the Sati Center, uh, an all-volunteer organization interested in bringing Buddhist study and practice together. And I welcome you all today, and also welcome Rick Hansen and Ruth Mendius, um, who are, are presenting this wonderful program today. Um, the Ricks, aside from sharing their first names, share uh, a... Makes it uh, easy to answer questions. <laughs> a, a, a deep uh, deep and long meditation practices and uh, study and, and practice with many Buddhist teachers and an interest in this mind-body continuum and how the practices of meditation and Buddhism work in in our in our minds and how those how those relate to what we know in the scientific world. Uh, Rick Hansen is um, is a PhD and a psychotherapist. He's married, has uh, a family, and he's been interested in this um, interested in this field for many years. Likewise, Rick Mendius is a neurologist, uh, an MD, also has a family and is also has worked together with Rick. I'm not sure exactly how long they've been together, but they've been doing these programs around the United States, actually, as I understand, um, because there's quite a bit of interest in this interface, and not only from the meditation community, but from the scientist community. Um, thank you. Thank you very much. Does that sound okay on my mic? Uh, well, that was a very lovely welcome. We've never been here before. And driving down, we just were excited, like kids going to grandma, kind of, with grandpa. Um, close to the holidays, maybe that was in our minds, but there was just a real happiness about feeling so welcomed already. Uh, Carolyn, uh, Maria Strassman, um, Tony, etc., have been so gracious here, so we're, we're very happy to be here. Uh, for Rick and for me, I, uh, I'd say our semi-home center is Spirit Rock. Uh, up in uh, Marin, You've probably many of you have been there, uh, so it's uh, really uh, happy-making to come visit other places and to, and to you know, feel like there's a sense of connection there, a larger gathering, if you will, the Sangha. Uh, I don't think there's much to add to Carolyn's introduction. I'm a psychologist, uh, or a neurologist. Uh, we've been at this for quite some time, uh, and what I'm going to do right now is talk a little bit through the plan for the day and then uh, we'll dive in. Uh, for better and for worse, uh, Rick and I tend to do this uh, somewhat informed by our own clinical and academic backgrounds. So, uh, like I said, the good news and the bad news is that we have a PowerPoint presentation, we have slides, we are going to talk science, we're going to move it along. Uh, so, there you have it. Um, I should say that uh, Everybody should have a packet. We've printed 16. If we need more, we can make more at lunch. Does anyone need a packet? Um, there I see. Could some helpful person, are there any on that table? Uh, we have some extras there. I think we've got over 60 people, so Carolyn will probably have to think about this at lunch. Meanwhile, if you don't mind. Oh, those no. are, no, that's the, not the packet. The packet uh, looks kind of like this, except it's skinnier. This is our script, you know, for better or for worse. Anyway, so do we have any more packets? I think we've used them up. So if you wouldn't mind, just 
looking over your neighbor's shoulder if that's okay, but essentially it's up here on the slideshow. I should say that even though we are going to present a lot of material today, it is going to be taped. Uh, we are taping ourselves and this will be posted on our website, which is wisebrain.org, as well as it's being taped through the Sati Center. So you can hear it twice or once in each year, I don't know. Uh, also, we will post, uh, we have a lot of this material uh, from the previous time we did this at Spirit Rock, also posted on our website. So you can kind of relax as we go along here. Uh, please be comfortable. We will take designated breaks, but it's really okay to get up, um, you know, before the break, uh, get some water or whatnot, uh, move around so the sight lines work for you. We're kind of settled here because of the audio-visual gear, but you should <laughs> feel free to move around to be comfortable. Um, I also really encourage you to get on our email list if you want to. Uh, it's an easy list to get off of, and we never give it out to anybody. Uh, the sign-up uh, sheets for that email list are on that table just immediately to the left of the door as you walk in. And if you'd like to get on our list for the WiseBrain Bulletin, which we kick out about every three weeks or so, a thing of beauty, I should say, um, and uh, a thing of beauty and wonder. But anyway, the WiseBrain Bulletin goes out. Wonder that it gets put out. Yes, it <laughs> anyway, but we get it out there. So there you go. Okay, that's it on that part. Uh, Please ask questions or comments anytime you uh, would like to uh, or make comments. And uh, we will also have specific periods for discussion. We will tend to move along, though. So please just know that. Um, okay, I think that's pretty clear. Rick's now going to talk about the overall plan. Great, thank you. I'd also like to add my thanks for having us come down and, uh, and give this talk. Um, I, I was coming as we were driving down today I was aware that it was 40 years ago that I first came to the Bay Area when I was an undergrad over at the uh, sandstone edifice down the street uh, and uh, it's amazing to come you know, come back to the, the peninsula and kind of go wow real definition of passage of time and sort of uh, kind of a real interesting introduction to not self when you realize that you know who was here when I was last here um, oops, excuse me. So the context of what we're going to talk about is to, and also to talk about what we're not going to talk about is this common and fertile ground that's the intersection of of what uh, for us are three areas of our personal passions and interest: psychology, neuroscience, and Buddhism. Um, and we especially want to go into the area of the intersection of those. Um, uh, of those three circles, which is where I think a lot of incredible creative stuff that's happening there. And in that intersection, we're going to be focusing on affecting on practices and techniques and understandings about affecting the physical status of your brain in order to improve your well-being, your personal growth, and your spiritual practice. Um, so if you, if you want to do this, if you want to to change your ma change your mind, to change your brain, to change your mind, to make your life better, um, you need you can intervene in one or more of these four particular domains. For example, the body. This means uh, doing things to affect your body in order to support your emotions, your concentration, your practice. Um, in today's to in regards to today's topic, this has to do with optimizing the brain structure and functioning 
and the related hormonal systems, the other means of communication uh, within the body, leading to greater well-being and a deeper meditative state and a deeper sense of practice. The mind. This means effect, uh, practices affecting the thoughts, feelings, wishes, images, that any reasonably healthy body and brain can have that are independent of the states of the brain or body as a whole. For example, an ordinary brain can hold wise thoughts about quantum mechanics or the Dharma, can be inclined toward loving kindness or happiness, but a well-trained, highly developed brain can hold dark and unwholesome intentions and engage in dark and unwholesome actions. And it's not too hard to look around and find examples of that. Relationships. Now, this is actions in, his, in an interpersonal sphere. The Sangha, basically. Reaching out to friends, working through issues with your partner, fellowship with other meditators. We are, uh, by evolution, a social species. We evolved in groups of 30 to 300 on the African savanna. We do not function as isolated beings. Spirit. And there's a little note in there of the three fundamental positions that you can take in regards to the ideas of spirit, you know, of transcendental possibilities outside of the conventional materialistic model of the universe. Uh, we wanted to tell you that, that outside of just the, sort of the literal scientific idea, there are these three possibilities. Atheist, you know, it doesn't exist. Agnostic, I don't know if it exists. And theist, ah, it exists. Rick and I are basically theists. We think basically at the bottom line there is some kind of underlying transcendental element that infuses the universe and through the universe our own minds, our own brains. And that element's conscious, blissful, energetic, and loving. And working in this dimension is a key element of our own spiritual practice. So all four of these domains work together. They blur into each other. Human beings tend to do this dichotomization or classification and divide things into you know, the... The four, the four noble truths, the five this is the seven that's, and Buddhism is exceptionally full of all kinds of numbers of classifications which blur into each other as you explore them. Um, but you can also work with each one of these as a distinct realm of practice. Focus on the body. Today, really our focus will be really on the body. We're not against any of the other domains, uh, but we're going to be working predominantly on how to foster the causes and conditions in your brain that are most conducive to your happiness, your peacefulness, wisdom, and meditative depth. Uh, the transcendental is not going to be our focus today, uh, although we'll, you know, if you wish, we can take questions about it later. Um, changing your brain means changing your experience. A working hypothesis today is that almost every, and perhaps Every subjective state of personal experience is correlated with an objective material brain state. There is a representation in your brain at the simplest level of your right great toe. Okay? Sensations from your right great toe at this moment are available and accessible to your conscious mind at any moment. And there is now new scientific data to suggest that things such as the sense of oneness with God, things such as the sense of a, of a spiritual union, entire concepts of medit uh, that were formally uh, assigned mostly to uh, meditative states, that there is actually an objective material brain state, a hardwiring and a wiring diagram that is correlated with that as well. 
So from this viewpoint, everything we're aware of, including our own sense of self, has this one-to-one correspondence with underlying physical brain structures and activities. And there are a couple of interesting things. First, this means that as your experience changes, your brain changes. One-to-one correspondence means you change the experience, the brain's in a different state. It changes both temporarily, temporally, millisecond by millisecond by millisecond, and as we'll discuss later on in, the, in, in our, our diatribe, I guess, uh, it changes in lasting ways due to the fact that, as Donald Hebb said about 50 years ago, as neurons fire together, they wire together. And so that fleeting flow of experience that's happening moment by moment right now leaves behind lasting marks and lasting resonances and circuits in your brain, just like a spring shower leaves a little trail of little gullies on the hillside and then further showers and further showers deepen the gullies until they become arroyos and canyons. The second point is that, which is the sort of the hopeful side of this, is that the correlation between your experience and your brain means that as your brain changes, your experience changes. So it follows from that, that if you change your brain in skillful ways, skillful means, you can also change your state of being in skillful ways and skillful means, that there's a fundamental neuroscience to the dharmic understanding of the world. And that, if I can get the computer to change, no, that's not working. <coughs> that's the point of the workshop. <laughs> We're stuck here. There we, there we go. go. Um, it may seem, you know, initially it's hard to think about intervening within your own brain at the organic material level, although it's actually very natural and we do this all the time. Um, you, for this, mo- this morning, for example, many of you, including myself, uh, changed your brain with a cup of coffee. In fact, I refer to it as recaffeination. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, so in, in that act, in that act, I altered, I, I altered my, neuro, my neurologic state. So the subjective psyche, the, the the sort of subjective kind of personal sense of things that we walk around with, does things to change the brain, which ultimately changes the psyche, and the results can be very powerful. For example, this is a picture of the brain in that's very active during a very deep meditation prayer state. Um, the rest of the brain is relatively quiet and thus in gray in this particular uh, diagram and not lit up in orange. The title on this slide refer- is a recurring th- phrase in the discourses of the Buddha that describes such a person with such a sincere interest in practice. That area in the, uh, that's lit up in orange on the slide is a, part, is a part of the region called the cingulate gyrus. This plays a central role in many incredibly important functions controlling attention, weaving together memory and emotion, self-observation, self-correction, and integrating thinking and feeling. And there are two of them. There's one on the left and there's one on the right. Now, there we go. I just have to push hard. Uh, so, so, if we're, we're on the, the frontiers of science, so we're going to have to take this with some skepticism. I'll let you know. Sorry. So, 
One thing to keep in mind here is that Rick and I are really pushing the envelope. If you think about astronomy, it's a science that's about two, three thousand years old, really. Um, neurobiology, maybe a couple hundred years old. In a real way, I think neurology today or neuropsychology today is about where biology was a hundred years or so after the invention of the microscope. In other words, around 1710. So, uh, you know, take all this with a big dose of salt um, on the one hand. On the other hand, one thing that we've encountered in this realm of neuroscience, because the brain is hot, right? The brain's real hot these days, uh, is a kind of, oh my gosh, isn't it great, or old wine in new bottles uh, as a kind of error. And we're going to try to steer clear of that pitfall on the other side of it. Uh, additionally, I should add, this brain stuff, you don't need this brain stuff to become enlightened. The Buddha became enlightened. Many, many people have been enlightened over the centuries or attained lesser but still very, very profound um, states of realization and enacted those in incredibly important ways in the world without ever having seen a slide like the one Rick showed a moment ago. So we're not in any way trying to say that we represent the skillful means that are available uh, at the intersection of uh, the Dharma, psychology, and neurology as any replacement for the Dharma. We simply see it as a kind of adjunct. I don't know if any of you read the article that we just wrote that came out in Inquiring Mind magazine. Um, yeah, uh, we want to try to really be clear here. We think of this as useful um, adjuncts, particularly for householders today, because most of the technology, if you will, of Buddhism was directed at monastics. And it worked very well in those settings. But I don't see any monastics in the room. I know Rick and I are not monastics. And particularly for householders who are busy and, and don't have a lot, lot of time for long retreats or many, many hours a day of meditation or an overall pace like that, uh, we think that the toolbox uh, in neurodharma really has some wonderful uh, skillful means there for householders who are interested in real progress toward liberation. So, good. I love this quote, Tenzin Palmo, great book, Reflections on a Mountain Lake. So that, all that said, adapt this material to your own needs and interests. Some people here will be more interested in the neurology part, some people more in the psychology part, others more in the Dharma contemplative practice part, all that's fine. There's a natural tendency to space out a little bit when we get into the circle that's not your main interest. It's okay to space out. On the other hand, you might find stuff there of particular interest. Within the field of contemplative practice, um, all the major traditions in the world have a contemplative uh, wing to them, uh, including uh, the shamanic traditions. Uh, so we're only speaking here of one, mainly, which is Buddhist. And then inside of Buddhism, which as you know has four main wings, if you include Pure Land, uh, we're more in the Theravadan side, although Rick himself has had some Tibetan uh, training. And so I'd say just uh, you know, know where we're coming from, but spin this you know, in a way that really, really works for you. Okay, and then I should say one more thing, which is that we're gonna really focus on steadiness of mind. That's a major element of contemplative practice. Steadiness of mind, as we'll say more later, is a means to the end of liberating insight. It's not an end in itself, but I think uh, the Buddha could not have been clearer in the Pali Canon about the fundamental, central importance of steadiness of mind. Uh, steadiness of mind also is one aspect of Buddhist practice that really maps well to neuropsychology.
Now we're going to talk about your amazing brain. That's not my amazing brain. It's definitely yours. Um, It's up against my chin. Okay, we'll drop that down. Um, so let's ta- let's have a quick tour of the organ that well, we're going to be discussing the rest of the day, uh, and some key features. No, there, there's no exam at the end of the un- of this unit, so don't worry about that. Um, but just some key features that are sort of recurring themes. First off, its size. The brain's not heavy. It's three pounds. In fact, there's a nice book about ten years old about the about neuroscience. It's called the Three Pound Universe. Um, and it's soft, gushy tissue like tapioca pudding. So the next time you see somebody bang their head, understand what they're doing with tapioca on the inside. It has about 1.1 trillion cells on the inside of the brain, and about 100 billion of those are neurons in the gray matter, which is a kind of a skin or a rind of nerve tissue wrapping around the white matter, which is largely the wires uh, and the wires connecting all the neurons. The gray matter for most of, is where most of the action is for conscious experience. That's the processing place. And each of those 100 billion neurons that are doing that processing has on the average about 1,000 neurons to which it's connected in various levels of strength and intensity. Those connections are called synapses. And so your brain is like a network with literally trillions of cross-connections in it, all of them operating at the same time. The activity... Each one of those neurons, microsecond by microsecond by microsecond, is in one of two states. It's either sending an electrical impulse down the axon or not. When it fires, each of those thousand neurons downstream gets a pulse of of electrical activity saying either inhibit your, your action or excite your action. So you can imagine, if you're sitting there imagining yourself as a neuron, uh, you're getting a thousand. You're getting an input from a thousand people every few milliseconds, and you're talking to a thousand people every few milliseconds. And sometimes it's the same people. Um, Talk about social networking. Yeah, really. So the moment-by-moment summation on, on the surface—that's all happening at the membrane of the neuron. Uh, and the, so the electrical potential across the neuron propagates through the cell, and. At that one place in the cell, it's, is, there's a decision point of go, no go. And so that's when the, the neuron determines whether or not it's going to fire based on the electrical potential at that point. So most of these billions of neurons in your head are firing many times a second. They're so busy that that 2% of your body weight is consuming about 25% of the oxygen and glucose in your bloodstream at any one time. In fact, that's sort of the upper one of this kind of the one of the evolutionary upper limits of the development of the central nervous system. We burn a good deal of our nutrition every day just maintaining this three-pound thing. And this is happening even in really deep sleep, and even in such a deep coma that you have to be intubated to support your uh, uh, your life functions. Brain is still burning a good deal of sugar just kind of sitting on idle. It's speed. The firing rate of a typical neuron ranges between 10 to 100 times a second. Major types of brain waves that reflect the ongoing uh, potentials of millions of neurons at a time, those oscillate around 10 times a second. Some of them are about 40 times a second, some more slowly. To make, it, to make it sort of concrete, in a half second it takes me to do that. 
billions of synapses got activated in your brain just in handling and processing the sound of my hand clapping. So the point underneath that is that all kinds of stuff's happening in your brain far too fast for you to notice it. And the slower, more congealed, turgid, glacial stuff that we call thought. How about that one? In particular, if you've been on retreat and watched thoughts arise and pass away, there, that's a glacier. Um, that, that, that thought's just the observable tip of this iceberg of lightning quick electrical, chemical, hormonal, and perhaps even quantum, mecha- quantum mechanical activities that's going on underneath. And the other thing, the next thing is this capacity to learn. We have the longest childhood of any animal species on the planet. Childhood's a very vulnerable time from the standpoint of survival. So why, what's the evolutionary uh, benefit in, in taking such big risks with such a small organism over such a long period of time. That's an amazing, remarkable state. And the reason is that there's this big, big payoff, this net adaptive advantage that's been, that's been so successful that we are now the dominant species on the planet. Uh, and giving the brain time during childhood to learn a vast number of things from experience, from parents, from grandparents, um, and become trained for that additional lifelong learning during adulthood, which enables you and our species to adapt to and thrive in his or her environments. We're one of the few species that's adapted to so many different kinds of ecological niches based on this particular kind of behavior. And the part of the brain that takes the longest time to fully develop is the prefrontal cortex, which is really deeply involved in executive functions of planning and the regulation and social adaptation of feelings and actions. There's been a lot of recent stuff, I think there was just out in the literature, about tension deficit disorder. And if you look at the ADD population, their prefrontal lobes mature at a slower rate than, than the, uh, the so-called normal. Um, so, for example, can you remember what you had for breakfast? Well, the memory you pulled up there was stored in your brain this morning. It learned and remembered what you had for breakfast. And you just accessed it when I brought it up to your attention. And so all this learning means that the actual structure in the brain must change over time. It's built into the system in a really dynamic kind of process. And there's several different kinds of things that go on here. There's neuronal pruning from the moment of birth. You'll use it or you lose it. Certain kinds of circuits, if you're not going to use them, they go away. And that's been proven in... In, in human species as well as in, uh, in uh, uh, separate mammalian species like cats, for example. So there's kind of a natural selection and pruning uh, within your own brain based on the environments in which you are. Changes in the excitability setting of an individual neuron due to increases in their activity. So the neuron gets readier to fire if it's used more often. Increasing blood flow to very active regions, even at the microscopic level. That slide that I showed you of the anterior cingulate in a deep meditative state is basically, it's a slide of, of an altered blood flow to an area of brain that's being used at that point in time with the rest of the brain not used so much. And as I said earlier, neurons that fire together wire together. They develop more linkages. They, there's a term called increased arborization. The dendritic uh, and axonal branches become more dense, become more connected, so that um, for the neurons that, that, are, that are firing together, there, be, there begins to be a whole volume upgrade in the input and relationship between those neurons. 
So the, the, point's, so the point's important that's worth repeating, that fleeting experiences can ha- have the potential to leave lasting tracks in your brain. I mean, we've all had those, the, the experiences of, of flashes of insight. That is a fleeting experience which hardwires. And there's something very interesting about that characteristic. Um, and our experience of living is enabled by this endlessly responsive and changing organ that, uh, in a sense, it's the physical basis for Buckminster Fuller's famous remark of, you know, I seem to be a verb. I'm not a noun. There's an action piece about the brain. Um, Next, it's it's balance of specialization and teamwork in the brain. The brain works through this very exquisite combination of specialization and teamwork. Different parts of the brain do specialized things. One part, which I'm using right now, handles the production of meaningful speech. It's Broca's area, and in a right-handed male like me, it's right where my finger is. Another part, in the audience, and perhaps even me trying to understand what I'm saying, uh, is in the temporal lobe. It's in charge of comprehending meaningful speech. There's also on the other side a dedicated system for processing faces and processing the emotional expressions on faces. But these parts work together very, very intimately. Um, this connectivity is, is, is to hallmarks. You can't completely say that these parts are working in isolation. What I am saying with my Broca's area and what you are saying, what you are understanding with your Ver- Wernicke's area in your brain are all interrelated. There's to some extent a verbalization going on in your brain. in my brain as I am speaking. So specialization, as Robert Heinlein said, specialization is for insects, not for us. Uh, And so information such as memory, and this is a very key point, roughly widely distributed through the brain, not in one place. The the whole concept of long-term memory probably has a holographic quality to it such that the the memories are are, are, are stored in a distributed fashion throughout the entire brain. And so in many conditions, such as occurs in, in, in small strokes or things such as that nature, one part can gradually take over the, uh, the function for the other if it's damaged. And the self is not localized to any single region of the brain. And there's lots of recent data looking at EEG spectral coherence. In other words, uh, things resonating together or not. Uh, looking at uh, various MRI studies, looking at the metabolic activities of the brain when one is doing the concept of self or I or me. And there's no place that that appears to show up. It sort of shows up everywhere. Okay. Um, A little plug there, actually, if I could. We're going to do a workshop at Spirit Rock in November next year, way delay, about... Um, using this neurodharma approach to emptiness, in other words, to moving beyond self. Uh, the subtitle will be something like the evolution and transcendence of self, quote unquote. Uh, so you might have some interest in that. Uh, if, like me, this notion of self is uh, actually pretty fundamental to practice. So uh, what I want to speak of right now is how in the brain itself there is a kind of pulsing Uh, that balances back and forth between order and disorder. And it's interesting that a highly disordered background of noise 
actually makes the system more responsive to signals. In other words, meaningfulness coming through. Think about Gregory Bateson's definition of information, a difference that makes a difference. Right? In other words, the more unlikely a pattern is, the more informative it is. In other words, its entropy is, is, is smaller. And so um, that's how the brain works. But what that gives you then is this wonderful dynamic in which the brain itself embodies, uh, in this context, two of the three fundamental characteristics of existence noted mm -hmm. by the Buddha which is to say impermanence. In other words, these pulses of meaningfulness arise and decay, arise and decay. They never last very long. And then there is a kind of spacious, fertile possibility out of which the next meaning can arise, the next spike of order or signal, uh, information in the brain itself. And that's a marvelous way to think about how the brain itself, as I said, has these characteristics of existence. A little later, we'll also talk about, alas, how the brain manufactures suffering, how the brain is hardwired and built in to generate suffering um, as the product of uh, billions of years of evolution, uh, millions of years, hundreds of millions of years of evolution as multi-celled organisms um, to help us survive. So, uh, in that context, I now, here's my little gizmo. Okay, great. Yeah. I want to talk about our little buddies, the neurons. We love these neurons. <laughs> They're our friends. Even though about 10,000 of them die every day. Alas, just through aging. Uh, quick sidebar. Uh, one drink also kills 10,000 neurons. That little buzz we get from alcohol is the feeling of our neurons drowning. <laughs> Literally having oxygen sucked away from them. Uh, so anyway, let's, let's drink to that. So <laughs> moving right along. Okay, the brain. Now the brain, in, uh, I had a mentor. I worked for a mathematician when I was younger doing risk analyses, probabilistic risk analyses. And he had a great saying. He said, Rick, you know, a mathematician, a real mathematician, is someone who works, wakes up every morning and asks him or herself, what is a number actually? All right. In other words, there's something very powerful about starting with the simplest thing and then building up from there. Uh, it's a strategy used in science. It's also a strategy used by the Buddha, which, who took a very deconstructive, postmodern, if you will, approach 2,500 <laughs> years ago in an agrarian feudal <laughs> culture. But anyway, uh, so let's start with a single neuron. So here's our little buddy, a neuron, essentially a switch. Neurons either excite or inhibit. Okay, Think of it as on or off, green light, red light, gas or brakes. Okay, looks pretty simple so far. You can see in the picture, this is a schematic basic neuron. There are different types. It receives uh, from the left side of the screen. That's the receiving end going into the cell body. And then it sends its signal based on what it receives and some other factors I'll get into in a moment. Down that long cable, the axon, the little things around it are insulation, myelin, and that makes the signals go faster. And then it shoots out at the very other end to other neurons. Okay, so it seems kind of simple, right? Nothing's simple in the brain. So first of all, the singular, single most molecularly complex structure in the human body is the receiving tip of a neuron. 
In other words, the left side of the picture we just looked at or is in your slide set, the dendrite side. There are hundreds of proteins there and there's some evidence that a lot of what uh, that has driven evolution in the brain in the last couple, three million years has been the molecular uh, protein structures on the receiving tip of the dendrites. Now also what makes a neuron fire? Its initial setting, uh, does it tend to fire or not fire based on its history? Then the number of excitatory impulses coming in, the number of inhibitory impulses coming in at any moment in time. Um, the firing rate of those 10,000 or 1,000 neurons coming into it. Um, the changes in that rate of firing. And then random processes, even down to the quantum level inside the neuron itself. All of that makes one little neuron fire. So you can see with that complexity, you have tremendous opportunity for variation of meaning. Because as you vary these inputs, you can carry signals. Think of the Beethoven's Ninth being carried in the modulation of a frequency. What's KR, what, KPFA, what's the, the classical station, 102.1 or what is that? Yeah, yeah 102.1, but then the tiny little modulations in 102.1 carry Beethoven's Ninth and the Ode to Joy. I mean, the opportunity for modulation is what can carry information in the brain and is carrying information in your brain right now as you make sense out of all this. I mean, it's just extraordinary, isn't it? Like, what's going on in this room right now in the coconut, as Philip Moffat calls it, uh, right now to make sense of all this? Okay. So now, that single neuron is being multiplied by billions of neurons in the gray matter alone, 100 billion of those guys. And um, as Rick said earlier, each with 1,000 to 10,000 synapses, that gives us about a quadrillion, uh, maybe only 100 trillion synapses, give or take a few hundred billion, right? Uh, I used to love doing risk analyses where they'd round off their cost estimates to the nearest $100 million. 20 years ago. I wanted some of that rounding error myself. But anyway, um, and as you can see in the slide, neurons are flickering. Uh, you know, there are waves going through. The uh, brain waves typically oscillate somewhere between 10 and 80 times a second. Call it 5 to 80 times a second. A lot of action going on in the brain. That means that the number of potential states of brain is 10 to the millionth power. One followed by a million zeros. That's a big number, right? A trillion is what? One followed by nine zeros or something like that? Hmm. That's a big, big, big number for the number of possible brain states. Okay. So now in the brain, of course, with all these possible states are all these wonderful circular loops, uh, which give you, if you've read at all Gerda Lescher Bach or anything about chaos theory, those circular loops allow for recursive processes. So to really, really simplify, the A neuron is connected to the B neuron, connected to the knee bone, the thigh bone, the C neuron, the D neuron, the U neuron, and so forth, okay, in a circular kind of way. So that recursivity now layered up in the architecture of the brain. Now we're at the level of circuits with millions of neurons in, in a circular form, um, allows for things like self-observation or awareness of awareness, for example. And um, I should also add that that circularity uh, enables the stream of thought. Uh, we evolved in a very lethal environment. When I say we, I kind of chart it back 
to the uh, for me it's kind of like an you know a, a spider, um, a lizard, a squirrel, and a monkey, and then us. That's kind of my own ballpark. And uh, in those environments, um, most animals didn't live very long. Most animals died in the moment of being eaten by another animal. Not a pretty thought. And in that environment, it really paid to be anxious and vigilant and kind of ADD. Because the squirrels or spiders or monkeys, they were all chill, blissing out in the higher plains. They were eaten before sunrise. My joke on that one is, oh, money, pot my chomp. <laughs> so there is a tendency in the brain to keep zipping all the time. Now, that's great for survival, not so good for meditation. We'll get to that a little later, how to undermine or defeat that or work with that tendency. But uh, in that quality, one reason for that is that in the circularity, different neurons are involved in the same neuron might be part of multiple circuits. So A, B, C, D, E neurons, let's say, to simplify, let's suppose that that C neuron is used into two circuits. So when the first circuit fires, it sends off, it activates the second circuit. That's why sometimes you're meditating away and you're just kind of sitting there and then suddenly this uh, smell will come through the room and uh, the next thing you'll know is you're thinking of grandma's oatmeal cookies and that segues to the geometry final you blew in college. <laughs> like, what? And it's just because they share a single neuron. Okay. So I think that's what I want to say about that. Bottom line, the brain literally, I'm kind of an astronomy junkie, um, the brain literally is the most complex physical object currently known in the universe. More complex than the climate of the planet, and you know how hard that's been to model, um, even though they're getting better at it. More complex than um, the heart of an exploding star, a supernova. Um, that's what's going on right now uh, between our ears. Okay. Now, Rick's going to talk about sources of individuality. In that complexity is definitely the room for tremendous, uh, if you will, uh, individuality as we're born and individuality as we develop. In a, in a sense, thinking about the brain, there's, there's an understanding of karma, the karma you're given when you're conceived and the karma that you develop and experience as you grow. Each brain in, each brain in this room is unique for many different reasons. There's a genetically based variation in the quantity and the sensitivity of the receptors in the brain for dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine, the protein neurotransmitters, what Rick was talking about earlier. All of the evolution in primates over the last couple million years, a great deal of it has been in these, these receptors for these neurotransmitters. And each of you inherit a certain unique quality of those uh, of those receptors. It's a five protein pore, and all of those all of that protein is genetically coded, and you got some of it from mom and some of it from dad, and you're not sure which of those five is from whom. Uh, second, of course, there is sexual difference. There's some subtle, important differences. Certain aspects of male and female brains, such as the corpus callosum, which is largely uh, larger in women. There's a great deal of interconnectivity between the two hemispheres in women than there tends to be in males. Third, synaptic connections that correspond to something as simple as the number one differ in thousand tiny ways in the brains of different people. It looks different uh, when you do uh, when you give a, an fMRI study to somebody and you show them a word. It shows up in little different ways 
in the brains of these people. It's the same word, and you you you, you run to, you know 20 subjects through the study, and it shows up in different places in, the, in these 20 different brains with some overlap. And fourth, whatever our genetic endowment might, might have been, events in utero and then from the moment of birth to the present instant all have, in, all have influenced your brain. So, what are the implications of that? First off, respect for individual differences and compassion for your own, yourself, and for others. It's traditionally sad. You know, there are four kinds of practitioners. I mean, this is a you know, this, this is a classic you know, reductionist classification from the Buddha, but um, it, it it makes sense, and you can elaborate this as you wish. The, the four types of practitioners: those for whom practice uh, in attaining enlightenment is an easy and quick process. We should all be so lucky. Uh, those for whom the practice is hard and quick. You know, you you get punished, but it's over fast. Um, those of whom for practice is easy and long, you know, sitting on the on the Tahitian beach for a couple of retreats, uh, and those for whom, like myself, practice is hard and long. Whatever group you belong to, what matters most is to practice wherever you are and to feed the causes that are going to lead you to a good result. And one of the most effective and most fruitful uh, causes to support this is to feed your own brain. By the way, I should say, this is the most intense didactic part of the day. We're just pounding through, and we really will do some meditation and some other things. So thanks for being cool with this so far. You get 30 seconds to attain enlightenment at the end of the talk. That's it. That's it. So anyways, All the evolution. Time evolution. Um, let's see. You can see this picture here. This is a fundamental uh, you know, schematic, essentially, of the structure of the brain. Uh, worms and spiders do have a rudimentary nervous system uh, and they share some of the very deepest, deepest brainstem structures. You move up to somebody like a lizard. A lizard is a very smart animal uh, in a larger scheme of things in which you're thinking of things like sponges and you know, um, anemones or whatever they're called in the ocean and so forth. So compared to them, a lizard's pretty smart. And then you move up from there, you've got the paleomammalian uh, brain, uh, early squirrels, um, I'm very fond of our ancient rat ancestors, uh, first mammals running around when dinosaurs still ruled the earth, you know, dodging shadows and so forth, but living through the cataclysms that killed off the dinosaurs. Uh, and then on top of all that, we have in the last two, three million years of evolution, in, which is essentially and largely directed at the development of the brain. In other words, you've heard there's a 2% difference between us and um, monkeys. And um, that's a, in terms of the DNA, that's about true. But almost all that 1% to 2% difference has to do with the brain. And most of those brain differences have to do with social functioning, which is really amazing. It has to do with language, empathy, reading emotion in other people, forming cooperative alliances, and the rest of that. Um, we did a day-long in Spirit Rock recently called the Neurodharma of Love, another shameless plug. We're going to do that one again with Sylvia Borstein who's kind of like the fairy godmother of loving kindness uh, in the Buddhist world. <laughs> and um, at Spirit Rock, at the end of March, March 30th, I think, on relationships and applying this stuff to relationships. And that might be really interesting for you. But anyway, to do that, we really learned a lot about the great new science on the evolution of sociability, which is really quite amazing. 
and it really helps us understand that much of what got us here is essentially caring and empathy that we are not just the um, you know clever ape but we're the empathic ape and that's how we got here today so um, moving along as you saw already and I just spoke to there are three major stages of brain evolution uh, you know I think that's pretty straightforward and if you think about it, uh, it really helps to understand how long we've all been at this. I said to Rick a little uh, earlier at the very start, uh, for kind of personal reasons, I feel like a million years old today in a way. And we're all a million years old. I mean, causes and conditions rippling forward you know, through our lives embodied in us today. We carry within ourselves the learning, the suffering, the growing of you know, every human being who's ever lived as well as our ancient ancestors. About 2.5, 2.7 million years ago, uh, our great-great-great-great-great-grandparents started using stone tools. And their brains were about half our size. Okay, about half our size today. And yet they were smart enough to make stone tools. I don't know about you, I can't make a stone tool. <laughs> so it's kind of humbling to think about how long we've been at it with 100, 150, maybe even 200,000 years as our own species. So evolution's been working away for a long, 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 long time. So what's the point of all this? You know, as I said, we have um, you know, the 2% difference. It's mostly about the brain. But why did all this work? Why did all this happen? You know, if the truth is that if uh, real estate, you know, it's like all about location, 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 what's evolution about? Grandchildren, grandchildren, grandchildren. It's all about passing on your genes, keeping your young alive, and staying alive yourself long enough to help them bring their own young you know, up to survival. Um, so that's the point, you know? That's the point of it all. Those are the forces that have crafted the brain. That's the chisel, that's the lathe, that's the tool that's molded this clay between our ears into being what it is today. Those are the fundamental forces and it's by understanding those forces that, for Rick and for me, really take us to a lot of compassion into the inevitability of suffering, but also give one great insight in how to relieve suffering today. Whoops, let me go back. There's a poignant truth here. You know, Mother Nature got us here today, but she doesn't care that much if we suffer. And so, in a moment, we're going to talk about um, the you know, if you will, evolutionary neurobiology of suffering. But first, it's probably a good idea to see if there are any questions or comments so far. Yeah, please. Oh, do you want to use the microphone so that you, your voice can be... Could you take the mic? Do you want to hand her the mic? There you go. That way your voice will be on the recording. Hello? Is it on? No, not on. There's some button there. Hello? Okay. Sure. Uh, you used the term psyche once early on. What do you mean by that? As a psychologist, I mean it fairly loosely to refer to the, um, you could say, patterns of personality and personal history and then the other aspects of, you could say, the self or the, the, the person that don't seem so personal. I meant it loosely in this way a psychologist might. 
No. There's no localization in the brain for it, definitely. That's, That's for right. sure. That's right. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Anybody else? Any other comments or questions? Yeah. When you talk about how the brain develops and forms synapses from a very young age, does this mean that um, as an adult, for instance, you could not become a prodigy at the piano? It must be formed as a child because we know the child prodigy sits down at the piano and soon is playing very, very well. Is this something that must occur in childhood or can these synapses be formed as an adult? Let me, in answer to that, distinguish between uh, prodigy and ability. Um, when we talk about a prodigy, we're really referring to somebody who does something before we would expect them to be able to do that. You know, Mozart being capable of playing the uh, you know, full-on um, uh, harpsichord at age three when most of the rest of us probably couldn't manage chopsticks until 10. Um, that kind of idea. So when we see a prodigy, we talk about somebody who, who expresses talent. That probably relates, in my view, to a, a genetically based wiring of that nervous system to do particular kind of things. Um, I think it's, you know, it's no different than somebody who has other physical abilities wired in that you see being elaborated at age four or five um, you know, of other kinds of things, or mental abilities being elaborated very early. Now, let me go back and say, let's talk about ability. There is, even in most of us, uh, if not all, the, na the nascent ability to do some of those kinds of tasks that probably remains throughout our lives. You, you know, it's been well documented that uh, you can pick up a language uh, into your 50s and 60s and 70s and learn a completely new, different language, different phonetic structure, perhaps even a, an inflected language like, like uh, some of the Oriental languages as opposed to the more you know, didactic grammatic languages in the European tradition. And so those are things that you can, you can learn. Now, you may not learn them as well as you will be, uh, at age three or four, because of the differences in the aging brain and its learning capacity. But there, are, there is always the capacity to generate new circuits and to make new novel connections. Okay. Thanks. Right there. Um, Seems to be on. Yeah. Um, simple answer to that is yes. The fact that we can do that, the fact that we can literally look at ourselves being aware and that that is such a commonality of experience to people who are, who are in meditative, meditative states. Now, I don't think that awareness of awareness is necessarily a property of driving down the freeway at 101. 
but I think awareness of awareness is definitely a property of entering into a, to a, a meditation state, becoming aware of watching oneself watching. You know, and so it, it means that that, that that recursion, that ability to pay attention to something and then pay attention to the ability to pay attention to something mm-hmm. is part of, it, it's basically it's like an epiphenomenon or an emergent property of these multiple, multiple loops, all of them feeding back in on each other, that sort of shows up when you get a brain that's as complicated as ours. It, it, it's this very fascinating property that you might not necessarily have predicted uh, from hooking a few neurons together in a squid axon model, for example. But that when you get millions and millions and millions and billions of neurons, all of them participating in these very dynamic oscillatory uh, uh, aspects, it shows up, which is fascinating. Sure, right there. Is the uh, capacity to direct your own thoughts is the capacity to direct your own thoughts an illusion, or where does that lie in the brain? Uh, the short answer is that it's not an illusion at all. Um, there are very, very strong executive systems uh, that are involved in planning, right. and to some extent, those can be apl- directed at one's own neurology. You know, uh, if you think about the definition of schizophrenia, you know, which is a very, very serious brain ailment. It, it refers to a profound um, difficulty in controlling thought. That said, right, anyone who's ever meditated can know how hard it is to shut down the stream of discursive thought. But for example, you could choose right now to think about something. You can decide what that something is. I'll spare you the pink elephant metaphor. And um, think about it. You are choosing to think about it. I should add that um, the actual localization within the brain of these functions is very poorly understood. And lots of times people will overclaim localization in a kind of sensationalistic way. But truly, like I said about biology, it's 1710. One of the properties in ter- that we, we alluded to in terms of the long childhood and the, de- and the use of memory to develop basically internal models of how the universe works uh, is, par- is part of that process. You'll see lots of little two-year-olds you know, that will drop the bottle off the, ch- off, the, uh, uh, off the table just to prove that the law of gravity continues to, to be a, a truth. Periodically, I want to ask, you know, I'm thinking about adding a helium balloon to the next one. Wow. <laughs> what the hell was that? Uh, screw up your kids really well. Um, but what, what, that, what I mean by that is that the brain learns to build basically a heuristic model of how the universe works. And then out of that model, it predicts actions. It predicts the consequences of actions. And so inside your head is this ability to basically direct your, your, and select from that model action that you wish to take at the moment, including thinking about particular kinds of thoughts. Now, actually, on that note, we want to uh, take a break. <laughs> so we, want, so but we will come back. So let's take a quick break, if we could, and then we'll come back and keep going. Uh, 